Uh, good morning, everyone. So great to be with you this morning on God's people. That last song that we just sang was, was beautiful. And I want you to um, learn a little Greek this morning in the phrases, Te Telestai. Te Telestai. That's what Jesus shouted on the cross. And it's translated, it is finished. That's what we were just singing and what beautiful words and hope and meaning we have because te telestai, it is finished. And we who are in Christ are privileged people indeed to have a great inheritance before us. I encourage you to make sure your cell phones are turned off as we begin this morning. And I want to give a greeting to those that are joining us online. Thank you for being with us this morning. It is good that we have the ability through technology to be together, as it were, around the throne of grace, the word of God open in front of us. So I encourage you to join with us in our study of the passage that we're looking at this morning. Author Steve Farrar, in his book, Family Survival in the American Jungle, talks about the need to be patient in order to recognize the true and the useful from the false and the deadly. He does so by using mushrooms as an illustration. And I'm going to quote from his book now. There are, thousands or, there are a thousand or more varieties of mushrooms that are good to eat. The most dreaded of the poisonous mushrooms are two members of the Amanita group. One is the death cup, and the other is the fly Amanita. The death cup grows in the woods from June until fall. Its poison acts like the venom of a rattlesnake as it separates the corpuscules and the blood from the serum. No antidote is known for the poison of the death cup. The only hope for someone who has eaten it is to clean out his stomach properly with a stomach pump. It is a small wonder that one variety is known as the destroying angel. The death cup has often been mistaken for the common mushroom, but a person should not make this mistake if he observes carefully. The poisonous plant has white gills, white spores, and the fatal poison cup around the stem. The plant that is safe to eat has pink gills, brown spores, and no cup. But many make the mistake of picking mushrooms in the button stage, for it does not yet show all the differences until it has grown larger. This is a good illustration for us to consider as we continue in our study in the Gospel according to Matthew. For in the parable that we will look at today, Jesus speaks of the reality of the final harvest, which will reveal that which is true from that which is not. That which is useful and fruitful will be brought in and used for good purposes. That which was only a pretender is thrown away and destroyed. Well, with that as our opening thought, as we want to consider how to recognize the true from the false. I invite you to stand as we read from our passage this morning. We'll read from two sections of Matthew, chapter 13. And the inspired and truthful word of God says, He put, he, Jesus, put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. 
And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. And now we drop down to verse 36. Then Jesus left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Please be seated. And let us pray. Father, to you we turn this morning, and even as our hearts have been lifted as we sing about our holy God, who through his Son finished the work on the cross, giving us great hope, we know that this morning we stand before you in your holy presence needing your Holy Spirit to be at work in our lives. For we know that you alone are the one that can open eyes and open ears and open hearts and give understanding. And so we turn and ask that through your Spirit, you would work and teach us this morning. So we thank you. And we want to meet with you through your word as you teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope already you've turned to your sermon outline and are ready to take notes this morning or on the church app on your phone. We've already gone a ways through Matthew 13, and Jesus has already given one long parable and the reason why he uses them in teaching. We saw last week that in the parable of the sower, actually a couple of weeks ago, he answered the question, why have most of the Jewish people and their leaders not believed in Jesus? Though they have seen his works, though they have heard his words. And Jesus says that as the word goes out, it has different responses as it falls on the hearts of people, revealing who they truly are. As Jesus taught on the use of parables, as we summarize what he said last week, he said he uses them both to reveal and to hide. They will reveal more truth about the kingdom of heaven to those who are in Christ, but will hide them from those who remain opposed to him and to his servants. He said that parables are given to bless and to take away. Those with, with ears to hear will receive even more, more understanding more truth, more wisdom, whereas those who block their ears and eyes find that even what little they have will be taken away. Thirdly, we saw that parables are used to reveal those who are already hardened in heart and unable to see the good, unable to see what the blessings that are right in front of them. So parables will hold them in their hard-heartedness, which Jesus warns will be to their peril 
and for their danger. Well, over the next several paragraphs, as we continue through Matthew 13, Jesus will give a series of parables, some of them quite short, to make known to us the nature of the kingdom of heaven and its value to those who enter in. So we're going to see this expression, the kingdom of heaven is like, over the next several paragraphs as we study this text together. As Jesus gives these parables, we keep in mind the meaning of parables or the purpose of parables to give one main lesson for each parable. And though Jesus may use images and expressions from everyday life, the parables themselves are not actual events that have taken place. They're used to illustrate a greater truth about the things of God, about the things of his kingdom. You've already noticed many times as we've gone through this gospel that Matthew, who is a Jewish follower of Jesus, takes great pains to explain things in ways that would gain an understanding among his Jewish audience. And that includes wanting to use the name of the Lord in a reverential manner. And so he prefers to write about the kingdom of heaven, whereas Luke will talk about the kingdom of God. But in fact, they both mean the same thing. We just keep in mind the original audience that was intended for each gospel. So in a few weeks, we're going to look at some of these smaller parables, but Jesus gives us another lengthy one this morning that we're going to consider. The parable of the weeds. And if the parable of the sower answers the question of why most of Israel has rejected Jesus as the Messiah, this parable will answer the question, why doesn't God just stamp out all evil now? Why, if the presence of the kingdom of heaven is here, does it not lead to the removal of all evil in this age? And so this parable becomes a lesson on patience, one that gives a sure promise of the judgment that is to come and the ultimate vindication of the righteous and the ultimate fulfillment of all of God's plans and purposes. So, let's dive in. Get ready to fill out your sermon outline with our first major point, which is the parable given. The parable given. Now, this parable is unique to Matthew. And the wonder of God, he has given us different books of the Bible, which when we read them together, give us a full picture of who Jesus is, of what the kingdom of God is like, of what God came to do, of what God did in sending his son to us. Among the four gospel writers, they bring their different perspectives, they bring different choice of events and words to mention, but under the inspiration of God, the Holy Spirit, they complete the picture that we want to have or we need to have of Jesus, filling out all that we need to know for life and godliness. Now, as we've already read and you've already seen in Matthew 13, Jesus actually goes through this parable twice. The first time he tells the basic story and he teaches in public. The second time, however, he has a gathering of his disciples and he teaches them in private the meaning of this parable. And so we're going to go through this parable, as it were, twice, as Jesus is giving the basic meaning, and then as we get the interpretation the second time we go through. I should say the basic story, and then as Jesus gives the meaning as we go through it the second time. So in our first major point, the parable given, we'll have four points, not of equal length, but to just retell the story. And the first we see is the dissemination, the dissemination. The text says, he put another parable before them, saying... The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. So the image is clear. The farmer sows good seed broadly in the field, which is then left to either produce a harvest or to be impeded. He has sown wheat, which will hopefully grow and produce a good harvest. 
But very quickly we find out that Jesus is not the only sower in this field. That there is an enemy who is in competition with the farmer over the use and the produce of this same field. And so after the dissemination, we move to the deception. The deception. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So we understand what's going on here. The enemy of the farmer enters the picture and moves in a stealthy manner, working in the dark and in the background. And he'll plant a seed that we would know today as Darnell, which looks a lot like wheat. It's a false type of wheat. As it plants and starts to grow, it, it looks like wheat in the early stages until the wheat forms heads of grain. But the Darnell does not. Yet it's in competition with the wheat for the use of the field. And it will be the harvest that will reveal the fruit, what is true and what is not. Now, some may be tempted at this point to say, well, you know, the problem was those servants weren't vigilant. They just should have been paying attention to what was going on. And then the sermon would go off in a direction about the need to be vigilant in our work and to pay attention. That, in fact, is a true biblical statement. But it's taught elsewhere. That is not the key point of this parable here. The point here is that there is an enemy who is clever, who acts in secret, and who operates in the darkness. And he is trying to usurp all that God is doing. Jesus reminds us in John chapter 10, verse 10, that the enemy comes only to steal and kill and destroy, and he will act according to his nature. Think about it. There's really nothing to be gained by the sowing of bad seed. There's only destruction. There's only chaos, spoilage, fruitlessness. Ultimately, the devil and his schemes can only destroy because he acts according to his nature. And he opposes the things of God. So when the plants came up, the text tells us, and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. <clears throat> so we know the story. The wheat has been sown, and now the weeds have been sown. And all the plants are growing, some producing grain, and the other keeping their appearance as weeds. I think we learn from this, at least in part, that sometimes it takes fruit, time for fruit to reveal itself to show us what kind of fruit we're really dealing with. And it might be the same then for the analysis of our own lives. It often takes time for the true nature of that fruit to be seen. That would be the same for spiritual things as for sinful things. Sin doesn't always appear immediately, but sometimes grows alongside that which is, a, which is good and then makes its appearance and will be sorted out in the final judgment. So now we have the seeds that have been planted, the good and the bad. And the, the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? It was common in those days for a farmer to have many working for him. After all, the, the working of the land would require a lot of hands. So that's just a side detail, not the main point. But they've gone out to see that there is good seed and there is bad seed. He says, did we not sow good seed? How then are there also weeds that are in the field? And the owner takes a look at the field, and he knows what's happened. He says, ah, an enemy has done this. And that's what he says to them. An enemy had sown bad seed in the farmer's field. And Jesus is drawing upon something here that was known as a common tactic of warfare in those days, going back centuries. 
where it was a tactic of war to try to sabotage your, the, the fields of your foes. You'd sow bad seed in an attempt to ruin the harvest. It was even known to happen among neighbors who would have disputes over property lines where they would fight over the dumbest things. And any study of church history and even human history will say that some things never change. People will fight over the dumbest things and do the dumbest things to try to get revenge against others. But this bad seed, as we've said, is Darnell. It's a plant that looks a lot like wheat. It starts out a lot like wheat. It begins to grow a lot like wheat, but it doesn't produce the grains of wheat because it's not wheat. It actually produces a toxic seed that is dangerous to other seeds in the soil. It's sown simply to try to ruin the harvest and cause harm to the landowners. This was not the only method of warfare in antiquity that would be used to try to destroy the economic power of your enemies. You could sow bad seed, but we also see in other places in the Old Testament where they would salt the fields of their enemies. Take salt and throw it across the field trying to ruin it. Or they would take stones and cover the field in stones to make it hard to reuse that land. The whole goal was to reduce and ruin the food production of the opposing people. If you cause economic stability, you could bring a town or a farm or an area into hardship, and that would possibly lead to the defeat that you were trying to accomplish. You ruin them economically so you can take them over. In fact, under the, the Roman Empire, this kind of thing was known, and the Romans had their rules because they wanted to protect economic stability, of political stability, transportation stability, where they had severe laws that would actually punish people who intentionally sabotaged the fields of their neighbors. So we see the spiritual warfare that has taken place here symbolized by the sowing of good seed and of bad seed. So we've seen the deception. We have the dissemination. We have the deception. Thirdly, we have the decision. So the workers are worried. After all, they're, they're called to take care of this field. So they come to the master and say, well, then do you want us to go out and gather them? They want to rid the field of the worthless weeds. But the farmer shows wisdom, and he shows patience, and he warns them against uprooting the darnel. So he says, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. If they try to just take out the bad weeds, they will ruin a number of the good weeds because what happens is as they grow down into the ground, their root systems become deeply intertwined. And so the pulling up of one pulls up the other, and that would ruin the harvest. So he says, let them grow and leave them in the field. And that brings us to our last point in this first major point, which is the division. Let them grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat in my barn. The farmer knows that the harvest is coming and that the, weed, the wheat and the weeds will be divided out. The weeds will be gathered, they will be bound and burned, leaving nothing of value behind. The wheat, by contrast, is gathered and brought into the, far, the barn of the farmer, a place of protection and safety, and of good use. Division and judgment are surely coming, just as the harvest surely comes to the field of the farmer. So just like Jesus did with the parable of the sower, where he gave the parable and then had a little side 
dialogue with the, with the disciples telling them the reason for parables and then came back to the explanation, so he does the same thing here. He gives the parable, and then he's going to give a couple of smaller parables, and then we'll loop back to give the explanation of this one, which we will now get to. So we have the parable given in the first passage that we read, and now we have the parable explained in the second passage that we read, which begins, Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and the disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. Jesus has been wrapping up a time of public teaching of those that have come to hear him. He's been teaching to a larger crowd. As we've seen, that at least part of his teaching was done with Jesus in a boat pushed away from the shore, that shoreline forming a natural amphitheater where his voice would be projected so that a larger crowd could hear what he is doing. But then he also has dialogues privately with his disciples. Well, here he's done. He's done with that preaching series, if you will, that discourse that he gave publicly, and he has now come back to the shore, heading back into the house from where he had been, perhaps where he'd been staying for a while in that region. And the disciples came to him, and they asked him to explain the meaning of the parable. Once again, they're learning, they're growing, they're discovering, they're eager, but they still need to have a little more understanding. But they do what you're supposed to do. They take it and they go to Jesus, unlike the crowds, unlike the religious leaders who would turn and murmur among themselves and, and not go to the source of all knowledge. And so Jesus, who has already promised them that he will reveal to them the secrets of the kingdom, will begin to dialogue with them. And in this case, he gives what's called an eschatological interpretation. That's just a long word that simply means the final things, the final judgment, the final outcome of what will happen with all of creation, that there'll be a separation of the good and the bad. There'll be the separation of the wheat from the weeds. And so Jesus will now begin to explain the parable by letting us know what are the elements. So I just draw attention to the point again that the disciples came to him and what an example that is for us to follow. Jesus had already told them that he would reveal to them the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. And they have this great promise they have this great privilege of going to him to seek greater understanding, to gain more information so that their eyes can be open even further, their hearts can be full of the truth of God's word. And I think we can learn from that example because all of us are dealing with questions, all of us have anxieties, all of us have problems and pressures, and there's one who says, come to me, come to me, come to me, come to me. And he's willing to teach us. He's willing to help us. He's willing to instruct us. He's willing to receive us. So now Jesus begins with the explanation. We've already read it. I love it. It's straightforward. It's clear. Uh, Jesus is a good teacher. He said, the son, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. And the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. So he's saying that he, the son of man, is the great sower, the true sower, capital S-O-W-E-R, the great sower. Now that was hinted at in the previous parable, that he is the one who is sowing the seed, but here he makes it clear, and he is continually sowing that seed, and he is continually doing it through his people, the church, that he has called and raised up and empowered and sent out to continue to sow the seed all around the world. That activity continues till today, but it's under his direction. He is the great sower of the good seed. 
The harvest field is the world. This place of battle between Jesus and the enemy. Now, I'm going to take a little bit of a side note here to address a common theme that some people bring up in this passage. There are some who take this passage to refer to the church and shows that the church will always be a mixed bag of truth and error, of righteousness and lawlessness. That is certainly true. All you have to do is read every letter in the New Testament and you find that the church is a mixed bag of good and bad. There will always be false confessions of faith, false teachers, false teachings, charlatans of all types. There are those who will honor God with their lips, but it will not be shown in their lives. There are those who will seek to sow false teachings in the church, who will seek to divide and conquer for their own purposes. And they'll fall back on things that supposedly they have done. And Jesus himself warned against such an idea when he said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And I have to say that I think that that's a possible view. And there are commentators that I respect that hold that view. But I find one little problem with it, and that is that Jesus says it's the world. The field is the world. And so I take that to mean all of humanity is a battleground, a constant battleground for each person that comes into the world to be either a recipient of the grace of God or be an opponent to that same grace. And the kingdom of heaven is going to advance. It is going to be proclaimed. It is going to be preached. People are going to enter into it by faith in Jesus Christ, going beyond just the borders of Israel, going to the four corners of the earth. This gospel of the kingdom, we are told later in Matthew, will be preached to all nations. And all will be called to repent and believe in order to enter into that kingdom through faith and repentance, turning away from their wicked ways, their old way of living, and turning to faith in Jesus Christ. But at the same time as the kingdom of heaven is present and the kingdom of heaven is advancing, the kingdom of evil is still present and not yet totally put down. And so this parable helps to explain how there can be the presence of the kingdom of heaven and the presence of the kingdom of evil. To quote D.A. Carson, one of the most well-known New Testament scholars in the world today, he said, the parable does not address the church situation, but explains how the kingdom can be present in the world while not yet wiping out all opposition. That must await the harvest. The parable deals with eschatological expectation, not ecclesiological deterioration. It's the reality of the ongoing warfare that will go over the soul and mind and will and life of every person that comes into the world. But we see the basic elements of what's going on in this intense spiritual struggle. And so Jesus goes on and talks about of seeds and sons. Of seeds and sons. The good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. Jesus is saying here that all of these seeds belong to someone. They are part of a family. They are part of a group. All of these seeds belong in one kingdom or the other. The good seed belongs to the Lord. The evil seed belongs to the enemy of the Lord. The good seed, those are the ones that are the sons of the kingdom of heaven. They're the ones... If you recall the parable of the sower who have the consecrated hearts that produce a, a, an abundant harvest of a hundredfold or sixtyfold or thirtyfold. They are the good soil into which the seed fell and there's a great spiritual harvest. And the church, under the power of the Spirit, will continue to sow that good seed and those whose hearts are prepared in our good soil 
will show to whom they truly belong. But all of that power and all of that and the preaching and the dissemination and the, the soil and the management is from the Lord. The salvation is always of the Lord. By contrast, the enemy is the devil. And the weeds are his children. Lost in rebellion and against the things of God. They might even associate or try to associate with the good seed, but their true nature will be revealed in due time. The enemy works in the darkness. The enemy works with a spirit of deception. The enemy works with a spirit of spite. And as I was thinking about this, I came across this illustration from the world-famous Gaither Singers. I didn't know this until I found it this week that Steve Green, who's a, just an awesome gospel singer, actually worked for the Gaithers for a number of years. That was a new thing for me. He worked for them for six years, and he talks about some of his observations. He says this, the Gaithers prefer concerts in the round, so a rotating stage, which means extra work for the riggers, those that would hold the, the four-inch rafter beams and set them up high above the stage, in fact, 100 feet above the concrete floor. From there, they would hang the speakers and the spotlights. And of course, they were well compensated because that was dangerous work, but setting up this stage that could go in the round. And he, as he would engage with these men, he would say they were not bothered by standing on these four-inch beams and looking down at the ground 100 feet away. What they didn't like, he said, was working in buildings that had false ceilings, acoustical tiles that were just slung just a couple of feet below the rafters that they were putting up. They were still high up in the air, and if they slipped, they would surely crash through the false ceilings to the floor. But their minds would play games on them that somehow there was a false sense of security, and would play games on them, and they had to be extra especially careful as they were working in those situations. I think one of the tactics of the devil is not always so much to try to scare us to death as persuading us that there's really no danger in a spiritual fall. And it's for that reason that the Apostle Paul tells, Apostle Peter tells us we need to resist the devil and stand firm in the faith. The Lord is at work. The church is growing. People are entering the kingdom of heaven. People are producing a spiritual harvest. But the enemy is not idle. He is also out trying to sow the seeds of false religion, the tares of deceit and lust, the weeds of division and dissension and rebellion. The enemy himself rebels against the authority of God. And it shows in those who are of his seed, but not of the seed of Christ. The enemy always operates out of vengeance, out of spite, out of anger, out of a desire to only spoil, not to make things well. He's come to steal and kill and destroy and is incapable of building up. He wants to ruin whatever it is that God is doing. He wants to ruin that which is good and useful. And we see it even in our own culture, large, greater culture where Evil ideas have infiltrated schools and governments with programs of all kind of insidious natures and plans. But we can see it with the falsities that go out over the airwaves of how the, the enemy stealthily infiltrates churches and stirs up divisions through whisper campaigns and gossip and slander and accusation. He's an agent of treachery. He's an agent of deceit, of weapons of the sinful flesh. Whereas those who are of the people of God walk according to the Spirit, dependent upon His Word and His prayer and the power of prayer and the need to walk in harmony and unity one with another. 
the seed, every seed, belongs to someone. As we move into the next point of the explanation, Jesus is going to make it more and more clear what the implications and outcomes are of that truth. First, we have the separation. The separation. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man, we are told, will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a dreadful message. It's a scary message. But it comes from the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're told that this will happen at the end of the age. It's a phrase that is used many times in Matthew. But it is the context that determines the meaning of that phrase. Sometimes it means just simply the end of an era. Like the end of the Jewish era. But sometimes it means the end of time, which I think is the clear reference here. When the harvest will be divided into two at the final judgment and the final separation, and all seeds will find themselves on one side or the other. We've already seen that the Son of Man who sows the seed, but not only does he sow the good seed, he is the one that sends out the angels to bring in the harvest. He displays his sovereignty over what happens in the end of days and in the final judgment. And as he uses the title Son of Man, I think we have a reference here to the prophecy of Daniel 7. Uh, just mark it on the, on the side in your notes, but Daniel chapter 7, there is a prophecy where one like the Son of Man approaches the throne of the Almighty, the Ancient of Days, and from the Ancient of Days receives a kingdom that will have dominion over all forevermore. Jesus is the Son of Man of Daniel 7, who will be that one in control, exercising judgment in the end. The reapers that he sends out are the angels. And notice what the angels do. And notice who they do it to. We're told that they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. Think of what's happening here. This is the removal of the wicked from the kingdom of heaven. It's not the removal of the righteous from the presence of the bad seed. This is the separation of the bad seed from the good, not the deliverance of the good seed from the bad. I want you to keep that image in mind because it'll come into play again when we get to Matthew 24 of what is happening in this separation and in this taking out. So Jesus is speaking of the judgments to come. The false wheat will not stand in the harvest. It will not stand in the final judgment. Think of the totality of that statement. The angels will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. That is a judgment that is complete and total. It's final. It's finished. Now in the days of Jesus, it was common to round up the weeds, bind them in bundles, and use them as fuel for the fire. And we have a clear promise here then of judgment against the wicked. Just as weeds are bound up and thrown into the fire, so those who are not in Christ will suffer a terrible final judgment. 
all lawbreakers, all rebels, all the immoral, all the impenitent will suffer because of their sin and their rebellion against God. It's a very stark, heavy contrast between the lawless who are of the seed of the evil one and the righteous who are the seed of the holy one. The sons of the lawlessness, the sons of lawlessness are of the, of the evil one, and they are the ones that will be gathered out of his kingdom. They will be included in all of the sinners and lawbreakers, and they will be thrown into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This fiery furnace is clearly a symbol of hell, a punishment that awaits the enemies of God. What is interesting is this graphic statement, weeping and gnashing of teeth, is found mainly in Matthew. Six times it's found in Matthew. Only once in Luke. He's trying to make something very clear to his readers. What this sign or this symbol or this expression is meant to indicate to us is the reality of what those who in hell are going to go through before a just and holy God. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. There may be those who are surprised to find themselves in hell and grieve and lament over the sin that justly and righteously brought them there, but they know that they are eternally lost without hope. I think also the, the image of the gnashing of teeth is those with this vitriolic reaction of how dare you place me here and will continue to blaspheme God throughout all eternity. When we hear images like this, into the fiery furnace, weeping and gnashing of teeth. For some, this is offensive to their modern sensibilities, sensitivities. Our own EFC statement of faith clearly says that we believe in the eternal conscious torment of those who are in hell, of those who have rejected Christ, who have offended an eternal and holy God, and as a result will suffer an eternal and conscious punishment. But to many in our day, they throw out the question, that's not fair. It's not fair that sins that are committed in the here and now, in this temporal life, should suffer an eternal punishment. So how do we respond to such a charge? Can we respond to such a charge? And I believe we can in a couple of different ways. First, remember the one who is offended. A holy and eternal and all-righteous God. And sin that people have committed will always be in his presence unless there is an eternal atonement that has been offered. And that's exactly what Jesus did. In the book of Hebrews, it's talked about how the Son of God, how Jesus offered an eternal atonement and an eternal redemption. Those who hide themselves in Christ for, for forgiveness and his righteousness are those that will stand in the presence of God. But if you are not under that cover, you are left to atone for your own sins before a holy God forever. But secondly, we must not think that somehow people, when they get to hell, are suddenly going to repent and wish they could change course. We see no evidence of that anywhere in the Scriptures. Because of the nature of sin, the sin nature that we have of total depravity, they will continue with their slanderous accusations and blasphemies against God throughout eternity, continuing to compile sin upon sin in their eternal judgment against, against their sin before an eternal God. 
Yes. This is a hard word. But because we believe in the word of God and in every word therein, we bow our knees before it, not try to manipulate it to fit what we desire. Jesus is the one who announced it. He is the one who is the judge. And his judgment is real. But what did Jesus do? He who was the God-man left it all to come and live among us for 30 plus years, living out perfect righteousness, perfect holiness, perfect obedience to the, to the law of God, and then was the ultimate sacrifice that God would accept. With all that that has been done, and with him saying, I bid you come and follow me, the one who rejects that has no excuse. And this one who did all of that is the one who sends out his angels who will separate the wicked from the good. So after the separation, then we see the shining. Then the shining. Then we are told the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of the Father. The judgment of the wicked is contrasted with the sons of righteousness who shine like the sun. The lawless and the righteous always held in contrast with one another. And this image of the righteous shining like the sun is from several different Old Testament passages and promises that one day the righteous will do just that. They will shine like the sun to display the wonders of God's mercy and grace upon those who are undeserving, which is all of us. And if you're in Christ this morning, clothed in his righteousness, te telestai, it is finished. And you are complete in that, in your faith and trust, then a billion, million, trillion years from now, you will still say, wow, I'm in the presence of Almighty God, and it's completely His gift. Why will the righteous shine? Because the wicked will have been removed. All of wickedness will be gone all the tarnishment of sin, all the taint of rebellion, all of the destruction that the enemies tried to bring. When Jesus Christ returns at his glorious coming, he will make all things right, separate out the wheat from the weeds, cast the righteous judgment against his opponents, and reward those who are of his seed. In the meantime, we know that's the promise. But even now, we are to reflect that glory reflect that light because the Holy Spirit indwells within us gives us the light of the word and we're to shine not because there's anything inherently good in us but because the Spirit has brought new life to us and is shining through us the victory will come but we have to be patient during World War II, as the story is often told, in one particular camp of POWs, they managed to put together a working radio from scraps and pieces that they had found, and they hid it in their bunks. And this allowed them to get updates on the progress of the war. And through this radio, they heard that the war had come to an end four days before their liberators arrived. For four days, they knew that victory would certainly come, 
And during those four days, it did not matter the circumstances that they faced. They knew that the victory was coming and they were filled with joy. And what joy they had. And we who are now in Christ know that the victory is coming. How much more then should we be those who are animated by the joy of the Lord, the hope of the Lord, the patience of the Lord, and stand firm, come what may, even as evil lingers for a while longer, because Christ will bring us to victory one day in his glorious presence. Well, as we await that day, there remains an ongoing struggle. An ongoing struggle for truth from error, for light from darkness, for hope from despair, for truth and life from false teaching and death. The kingdom of heaven is here, but evil still remains. And so we bow the knee and we rely upon Christ. And we proclaim his word as the gospel goes forth and people are growing in the Lord, even as there's evil that will continue to oppose. The victory is ours, but not yet fully consummated. So he who has ears, let him hear. What separates the saved from the lost is who do they know? So the question this morning is whose seed are you? Well, next week we'll have the opportunity to go back into a study of the Word of God. But until that time, what are some lessons that we can take away? We who are good seed been born again of the Spirit of God, who have His Spirit indwelling within us, who know that we are forgiven of our sins, that we have a new orientation, a new way of thinking, a new behavior, a new everything, must continue to sow that seed among all who are around us. But since the enemy himself is not idle, we need to continue to sow the truth and contend for it, to live it out, to proclaim it to others explain it and since the son of man will come in judgment we commit ourselves to living in a holy manner before him and we do so under the power of God's Holy Spirit we're continually dependent upon him who is the victor and will lead us to glorious victory one day and even as we await to shine like the sun Do you await to shine like the sun? Even as we await to shine like the sun in his glorious presence forever, we ask God to empower us to be the light of the world even now. As we wrap up our time in the word this morning, before you start shuffling and putting things away, I want you to take a moment to ponder your own heart right now before the Lord and reflect on just in a moment what this word is saying to you this morning. And after a moment of silent reflection, I'll close us in prayer.
my good and gracious God, how thankful we are this morning that our victory is in Jesus. And with his shout of Te Telestai, it is finished. And for in Christ this morning, we know that we have a bright and glorious future ahead of us where we will shine like the sun. But Father, we know that we still make bad decisions, go in wrong directions, allow things to percolate in our hearts and minds that should not be there. And so we ask you to continue to do your cleansing work in us, that our thoughts, our attitudes, our hearts, our behaviors would all come into alignment with the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would even more, as you've called us to be the light of the world, we would shine just a little brighter each week as we're walking in greater holiness and obedience. And as we await that day of ultimate victory, which is as sure as if it has already happened, Father, gird us up to be strong and steadfast, to live for you, to bring you great glory. And may your joy fill our hearts as the strengthening agent that we might live for you. Father, we turn to you. And we pray that we would have hearts continually transformed. And we pray for those who are not yet inside the ark of safety of Jesus Christ, that you would open ears and open eyes and draw them into your loving embrace. To that end we pray and we give thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we began our service singing from Psalm 150, which was an exhortation to praise the Lord. We're going to close asking